Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment. It is that special time of the year known as festival season, and I am reporting from one of the major film events of the fall, the Toronto Film Festival. It runs from September 8th to the 18th, and throughout this year's festival, I will be recording podcasts on the ground with a rotating crew of Film Comment contributors and special guests covering all the highs and lows of this year's lineup. So follow along on filmcomment.com. Today I have with me a wonderful roundtable of guests. I'm just realizing it's all women, which is always fun. And I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. Chloe, you want to go first? Uh, sure. My name is Chloe Lazat, and I'm the editorial manager for Movie Notebook. Um, thank you very much for having me, Devika. I'm Christina Nord. I'm the head of the Berlinale Forum based in Berlin. And Christina, it's your first time on the podcast, which we're very excited about. So thank you. Thank you for uh, gracing us with your debut. Thank you for having me. And? And I'm Beatrice Liza. I am an editor at Criterion and a critic around town. <laughs> around, yes, yes, a critic at large, as awesome. we like to say. Uh, thank you, all three of you, for joining me. And I think we actually have a very interesting crop of films to talk about today. The first that I wanted to really dig into that I think a lot of people have been talking about since it premiered at Venice, won a big prize there, is Saint Omer by Alice Diop. Alice, we've known her as a documentarian for the last many years. She had this great documentary feature, New, that released in the U.S. actually just a, uh, a month or two ago. And this is her fiction debut, and it's very unexpected, I think. It revisits a lot of her preoccupations, but it, it took me by surprise. But Christina, since it's your first time, you maybe you want to start us off by telling us a little bit what the film is about and what you thought of it. Well, it's um, about two women. Um, the first one is a writer, and she is writing a book about uh, the story of the second woman, who is a young student, um, student of philosophy. Um, she had had a baby, a while ago, um, she had taken that baby to a place at the seafront and left it um, so it would eventually drown. So the film is based on a true story, which sounds terrible. Um, I mean, I, I tried to sort of like talk about the film with a friend of mine, um, just a couple of uh, like this afternoon. And it was really hard to um, talk about the film without making it sound very cheesy, stereotypical, and highly dramatic. And in fact, like a the lifestyle film, movie in the, yeah, in the yes, U.S. Yes, <laughs> sort of. Sorry, and, lifetime and, movie in the U.S., not in, lifestyle. In, in yeah. fact, it's the complete opposite. It's yeah. very composed, very calm. Um, it, uh, it touched me without being overtly emotional or anything like that. It has a very good sense of um, rhythm, editing, pause, um, and um, for that reason, I really like, um, it, I think it's one of my favorite movies I saw here. Um, so, and it's basically set in a courtroom in a small place in northern France called Saint-Omer. Um, that is the, yeah, that is the city where the trial takes place. 
So we have a lot of courtroom um, activity going on, but as I said, very calmly, very composedly. Um, and um, that is sort of like the basis. And then we also have flashbacks. So the first protagonist, the writer, has flashbacks um, which make her recall her own youth um, and her mother and her charged relationship with her mother. Um, so that is one level. And then there is also the level of um, her relationship with her partner. We discover something about her state. I think I don't want to say it right now because it's something which is uh, revealed like after one hour of the movie and um, I don't want to spoil it. Um, but yeah, basically it's about uh, motherhood and your relationship to your mother and uh, as I said, I found it very, very strong, and I think we can go into detail. Yeah. Also, I have to apologize to listeners for the aggressive background music here. We're in a hotel, and this is the quote-unquote quietest spot we could find, so apologies. But hopefully the insights will be so rich that you'll forget all about the ambiance. That's the hope, or at least maybe the ambiance will amplify some yeah. of the insights. Um, it's interesting uh, what Christine was just saying about... Um, the fact that when you try to describe like what the film's about, it can come across as like extremely dramatic or like even cheesy just because, I mean, I think we just came out of the same screening a couple of hours ago, so I'm still gathering my thoughts about it, but it is kind of this intimate courtroom drama based around kind of long excerpts of testimony. But the way that Diop like cuts and focuses on different characters' faces is really amazing to me. Like, I don't know, the way that she focuses attention within those scenes is always kind of surprising and correct. And the, the way that she choreographs gazes is really stunning in the film, I thought. I, I was really struck by the spatial and dramaturgical, you know, sophistication of the film because the work I've seen of hers, I mean, she's only made nonfiction before and often sort of observational nonfiction where... You know, you don't have that much of control over the mise-en-scene and the choreography of bodies. And I was just amazed at how how intelligently and thoughtfully, you know, as if she's been making fiction for years, you know, the way she arranges people and angles and gazes, like you were saying. And for me, you know, it, you know the great sort of text, Can the Subaltern Speak by Gayatri Spivak, which is, you know, can, is a subaltern woman ultimately knowable? I mean, that's a question that the scholar Gayatri Spivak posed about po post-colonial scholarship. Like, you know, can you go back to the archive and excavate the true feelings and intentions of a subaltern person in society, specifically a subaltern woman, when everything that you know about them has been written by, you know, the powerful or the, the people who, who never knew them, you know, who only projected their own aspirations and fantasies onto them. I feel like I've rarely seen a film that demonstrates that particular quandary, you know, so excellently. Because ultimately the film is, you know, you. I kept watching the film thinking we're going to find out something about this woman who has committed the most unforgivable, unimaginable act killing her own child, like a mother who's killed her own child. I kept thinking we're going to find out something that explains it, right? Like something horrible happened to her. Her older partner treated her in, in some way or her parents were abusive. 
but we never get the answer and all we keep getting are our own projections reflected back to us and so i think we get this amazing demonstration of this question can you know a, a figure in society who is so clouded by the assumptions of everyone else and i thought the most brilliant moment in the film was uh, this discussion of sorcery that comes up because there's this whole debate about whether what she did was due to witchcraft and there's a moment where she mentions sorcery and the judge is very confused and says but you you're a philosopher you believe believe in western values and then the police detective comes and there's kind of a mystery of whether the police detective introduced the element of sorcery because he thought that he needed to be culturally sensitive to an african woman so he's the one who brought it up and then we don't know if she took that detail and used it in a strategic way you know to absolve herself or if she actually believes in it or if her mother actually believes in it and i thought that was brilliant because it creates this again this it it just the film is constantly confronting us with the impossibility of truly knowing a person especially a person like a black woman who we as a society are constantly trying to explain through our own narratives you know preconceived narratives so i just thought it was theoretically so complex and then with a formal design that was so simple but precise it yeah i don't know it's almost like a mystery that just keeps looping in on itself and and like a, it's a continuous red herring almost right no that's that's a really good point that scene that you were just talking about with the police inspector diep fades in this music sort of while he's talking and kind of like almost drowns him out uh she uses a lot of music by roomful of teeth i think is the name of the ensemble that's like this vocal choir and a lot of the sound design is centered on this idea of the breath and like you know i think it kind of goes back to what christine was talking about with motherhood and kind of you know this idea of like uh like being linked to your mother the person who gave you life is part of the film as well and like yeah this idea of like a mystery that keeps folding on itself like in moments like that it's kind of a transcendental style kind of thing that's what it reminded me of and it, it sort of breaks free from this like why did she do it into like this larger kind of more cosmic mystery maybe like a mystery of whether it's possible to know people at all there is another you mentioned gayatri spivak i'd like to um chip in with another notion by edouard glissant Opacity. Are you familiar with yeah opacity yeah. um and um I was thinking about opacity while watching the film because um there is so there are so many things which are beyond explanation to the characters themselves but also sort of like in the bigger framework and I think a notion like opacity might be of a certain might be of certain use um in that uh, in that constellation um yeah Yeah no I I found it really interesting where at the you know I I interviewed Alice yesterday for film comment so listeners can uh keep an eye out for it and she started off by saying you know she wanted to she went to the real life trial the trial of this woman because she wanted to understand and I said you know but I think the film is defending the woman's right not to be understood you know it's almost like it's it's Yeah it's defending a person's right not to be explained rationalized known and I I think Glissant is a perfect reference there that's that and 
that is so hard to grapple with when it's something that speaks to such a primal fear and horror of the murderous mother. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think this is a film we're going to be talking about for a while and Alice too. So I haven't seen the film, but uh, hearing what you guys have to say, I, I think it is very uh, strange and paradoxical that it seems to be about the opacity of a woman. And yet, you know, the whole purpose of a trial is precisely to come to arrive to like, you know, a certain truth and like pin down this An person. objective truth. Exactly. You know, or like state sanctioned truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No. I think it's also super interesting how the film ends. I don't want to go too much into detail, but um, it doesn't end the way we would uh, we would think it would end. Um, so um, there is, for instance, a very beautiful moment um, when we listen to a Nina Simone song that is crucial in the ending or in the last, let's say, 15 minutes of the film. And then there is also, um, there are scenes from Medea by Pasolini, um, which is also um, very unexpected to a certain extent. On the other hand, Medea is mentioned beforehand, so maybe it's not completely unexpected. But um, instead of like closing it the way you would expect a courtroom drama to be, um, to be closed, Alice Diop finds like many, many new reference points and she develops new ideas and that was also something I found very convincing. Yeah, and a great, there's a Marguerite Dura reference also. And all these references are made so directly. That's something I really love about her style. She's, she has this directness that I think is almost rare in contemporary cinema where filmmakers, you know, art house filmmakers specifically tend towards ambiguity and subtlety. And this is a very ambiguous film, but she also has a bluntness, I think. She's unafraid to, you know, put her references out there and make connections very, in very visible ways with conviction. I mean, that's, that's kind of, and it's interesting then to see a film made like that, which is ultimately about ambiguity and, you know. Uh, yeah, I think that goes back to what you were saying about how it kind of feels surprising that this is her first fiction feature because there's such a confidence to the way that everything is executed. But it's always like not the way you expect it for like the genre, because it is kind of about ambiguity in a very assured way and in a new way than what we're used to. Yeah. I'm wondering if this is actually a good segue to talk about uh, another film about an sort of unknowable woman, which is Corsage. <laughs> Very different film, but, you know, there are some, as we're talking about it, she's also kind of a bad mother and, you know, we don't know what's up with her if she's mentally ill or hysteric. Beatrice, maybe you want to lead us into this one. Sure. Uh, so Corsage is, uh, I suppose, the latest entry in a sense of uh, just like cinematic depictions of um, this Empress of Austria um, you know, originally Romy Schneider played her as sort of her breakout when like the sissy movies in like the 50s. Um, and then she like reprised that role in like a bleak manner, as you would imagine from a Visconti film. Um, anyway, so this time we have Vicky Creeps assuming the role of, I forget her name. Elizabeth. S Elizabeth, right? yes. Yeah. Another I, Lizzie. Another Lizzie. Yeah. Another Queen Lizzie, um, well, Empress. Right. And, and, you know, essentially, 
I mean, it's the story of her just like extreme frustration at the fact that, you know, she is a monarch, a woman monarch in a time when like, you know, like her purpose was essentially to be ornamental. Um, and yet, you know, she she's a woman of, of great passion and has a great adventurous spirit. She's very frustrated at this. The corsage itself <laughs> is the great metaphor, yeah. which is kind of part of the reason I'm not completely on board this film. I think it's a bit on the nose in terms of, I don't know, just stylistically how it depicts her, you know, just stifling way that she lives her life. And it's essentially just like goes through just like her traveling around the country. Um, I don't know, getting into fights with her husband, like finding release in different forms. She like develops an opium addiction, which is like strangely presented in a sort of like affirming way, even though we understand like the tragedy of all. Like <laughs> I will say just because I just watched All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which we will discuss at a later podcast, that that she she has a heroin problem at the end of the film. And the doctor says, uh, this is a new novelty in the market. Right. It's completely harmless. And that's something that happened to women. Exactly. Has been happening <laughs> to women for decades. They were prescribed, you know, awful addictive drugs. And I, I thought that was a very, I mean, this is based on a real, this is based on a book and it's obviously a historical film. And I thought that that was a, a detail I had, I didn't know about the, the life of this empress. And one of the many aspects of the film that feel a bit quite contemporary um, Christina, you also saw it, and what did you think? Yes, I liked it. Um, I liked it quite a lot. Um, I think sometimes it was maybe a little bit too um, explicit when it came to the use of the overall metaphor, the corsage, uh, and uh, the fact that uh, the main character is very much limited by by social restraints, by the expectations she's facing, by the role she has to embody. Yeah, I, I think I'm a little conflicted because, you know, the the real Sissy actually was like a, somewhat of an adventurous, like she did ride horses, but it's also, you know, somewhat of a cliche in this sort of like period drama the about spunky stifled woman, woman the yeah. spunky woman that's like, you know is one of like riding horses with like one of the boys and yeah. you know just you know I, I just felt like the imagery it used to show this like you know stifled feeling felt very um just cliched to me especially since like you know these sorts of dramas about you know repressed women but like they're also luxuriating in their wealth you know you think of like Marie Antoinette yeah. and um, you know various Spencer. Spencer. <laughs> the movie Spencer was on my mind, but I will say that I liked it a lot more than I expected to. I think you both are completely right. I think the metaphor is very loud and clear. You get the point of the movie very quickly. But I actually thought Marie Kreutzer, the director, um, does have a very interesting formal style that that kept surprising me. You know, a kind of understated and very dense uh you know uh, the tableaus are very dense with detail um and there is clearly a kind of historical interest as well so the movie doesn't completely just devolve into as with spencer for example which is not like a fair comparison they're completely no, that different is stories. absolutely horrendous yeah <laughs> but you know it doesn't just indulge in her mental state there is a widening of the lens a little bit um 
that I appreciated. And it's it's very funny too. It has this very sharp and wry sense of humor that that kind of um, again surprised me and. I just have to say, I think Vicky Creeps, if Vicky Creeps did not play that role, I think this would have been a much worse movie or I would have liked it a lot less probably. But her performance is just, I don't even want to say organic because it's not like, it's not realistic acting. You know, this is a period drama. She's very, it's, I, I, I was trying to find the right word for her acting the other day and I just, it's just very intelligent. I mean... Her acting just exudes a kind of intelligence to me where she manages so many, just like the littlest little, you know, gestures or or the way she comports her face or her eyes. She, I think, imbues this character with a lot more complexity than the script necessarily has. I would absolutely agree. I think this year in particular, I mean, Vicky Creeps has obviously had very interesting roles since her breakout in Phantom Thread, but... This year with, with Corsage and um, she was also in Mathieu Amaric's Hold Me Tight. To me, like, she really emerges as her own sort of auteur, auteur actor. Like, you know, you think of, you know, the great actresses like Juliette Binoche, like how they always bring a certain complexity to maybe something that's not, you know, beyond them doesn't have that. But like, I think with these two films, like she's really... She really, I don't know, has proven that she can really elevate a film. And it's, I'm very impressed. She's amazing. You're listening to the Film Comment podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. I'm wondering now that we've gone from France to Austria, maybe it's time to go to Denmark. To talk about another very exciting fall title, The Return of Kingdom Exodus by Lars von Trier, which is, it's the, his uh, TV series, which I believe began airing in the 90s. There were two seasons and now he's made a third season after all these years, after more than, after about 24 years. And they screened two episodes of the third series here and there's three more episodes uh, which will screen in New York uh, I believe all five episodes will be scre- screened in Venice, will be coming to New York. So I had not seen, I have not seen the previous season. So I went in completely uh, blind, but I know Beatrice and Christina, you have some familiarity with the prior seasons. Christina, maybe you want to? Yeah, I saw the prior seasons. However, it's a long time ago, a Me very too. long time ago. So I don't have a very precise recollection. Of course, Watching uh, the Kingdom Exodus, the first two um, two parts. Um, of course, I immediately sort of like um, I had souvenirs, um, and uh, the new series, the third part, is also very conscious about its own history. So there, from the very get-go, there are constantly hints, allusions, references to the kingdom, um, and uh, for instance, the fact that. Uh, during the credits, during the end credits, Lars von Trier used to show up 
and comment what we just had seen and sort of like also say something about what we are going to see in, um, in the next episode. And this time he does that too, but he does no longer appear on screen because he says he's gotten too old and uh, time has not treated him very well and he's no longer as beautiful as he was, uh, as dashing as he was when he was like, I don't know exactly what age he was, like in his 30s somewhere. Yeah. So what we see is a red curtain and a pair of black shoes, um, elegant shoes, um, and these shoes are supposed to be last from three years. Um, so that is a clear reference to... Um, to um, to the first season. Um, yeah. yeah, I just, I mean, it's funny because we're just talking about this ending, but I, I, I found that so touching, the fact that he obscures himself. I mean, obviously he says it's because he's less beautiful, but, you know, I... He, I also, he has Parkinson's. That's true. That's, that, that is another yeah. factor, just like him not wanting to be seen. But, you know, I feel like that sort of self-reflexive aspect of it I'm reminded of like the end of his last film the house that Jack built where he's like retreading his own relationship to you know the films he's made the criticism he's received you know the sort of art he's decided to make and which you know has obviously been quite divisive but like I think you know mentally it, it's taken a toll on him to be in you know the public eye to receive that kind of to be the you know, provocateur. To be and, the provocateur, you know. I And, you know, the fact that here he's just like, no, you're not going to look at me, is, you know, I found very touching. Um, I'm not the most qualified person to summarize the series, but for those who haven't seen it, it's set in a hospital in Copenhagen called the Kingdom Hospital is how it translates to English roughly. And, again, me coming into it without any background... It's kind of an incredible combination of a workplace comedy, you know, the, like a sitcom, like the ones that you, we know, uh, like American and British sitcoms, like The Office or even uh, melodramatic, like soaps, like ER and stuff, right? And then that, but then there's combined with this like kind of Lynchian, uh, you know, supernatural, gothic storyline about strange, dark things happening. And I, the, the, the two episodes at TIFF really were, I think, inching toward the supernatural stuff, but they were more in the workplace comedy arena. Yes. And they were so funny. I mean... So funny. It's incredibly <laughs> funny. And a, a, one of the big gags in the second episode, I mean... So there's a new doctor who comes in um, from Sweden. Sweden. <laughs> and so big gag is this enmity between Swedes and Danes. And uh, God, it, it takes such wonderful turns. There's like a support group for Swedish people working at this Danish hospital. And this guy who comes in is, you know, is, he wants to like fix this place up. And there's a gag involving pronouns, which when it started, I thought, uh, Lars Wanshir, please don't. But I actually thought, you know, that not only was it really funny, it managed to make a joke out of it while also being actually critical of people who take on this kind of political correctness without actually treating it as a form of justice, you know, just kind of this cosmetic play. And I thought that, like, for him to pull that off is impressive because a lot of filmmakers and like content creators try to do that these days and usually end up with their foot in their mouth. Yeah. I think he, Lars von Trier is often 
um, I feel like dismissed for being sort of a mindless provocateur when like oftentimes he's very like engaged and like aware of what he's saying. He's like much more intelligent than people give him credit for. Um, but this like infighting between Denmark and, and Sweden is just hilarious to me because like for someone that's not European, it's like the most banal <laughs> conflict or just like these two countries. I mean, I, like I said, I don't know the history, but it's just like the epicness with which he frames that conflict between nations is like so out of proportion from what I understand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Christina, did you want to chime in? Yes. Um, I'd like to mention two things which really impressed me. Yeah. First of all, it's sort of like the level of the nonsensical. He is a master in um, creating nonsensical situations. And I think that's not, not very easy to come up with uh, all this nonsense and to make us laugh. It's really hilarious, um, but in a very, in a very clever way. Um, so that is something I, I really appreciated about it. Um, sort of like to have this capacity and this really freewheeling spirit and mind to go all sorts of places and, um, yeah, without, uh, without trying to make sense. Um, and I think there is something, maybe I'm mistaken, but I think there's something utopian in nonsense. Um, so that is one point. And the other thing which you were mentioning, um, Devika, is like uh, that you're not really sure when it comes to political correctness and the way he makes fun of political correctness. And to a certain extent, I had I was watching certain scenes and I was like... Mm, what is he doing there? And isn't it a bit easy to make fun of political correctness? Yeah. Um, but then again, he also makes fun of the um, opposite of political correctness. Exactly. Um, yeah. And that was something I found highly remarkable. Um, so um, um, it's not sort of like this typical conservative, um, the world is no longer the way it used to be. I'm an old white male and I do no longer get along in this new world. Um, and it's... Uh, it's, it's a stupid new world. It's not like that. It's more like there are things about this new world which are risible. Um, but there are also a lot of things about the old world which are, yeah, which don't make sense, which right. are like, uh, which we should make fun of. Um, and that was something I liked. That's, yeah, yeah. I think that's really um, I 100% agree. Yeah. It's, it's, Interesting because, you know, usually when people, you know, pick up on these issues of political correctness, there's sort of like an implicit side that's taken, even if someone's trying to not take sides. But here it's, it's less about that and more him identifying a new dynamic, you know, in the world and, you know, identifying it and then just like playing around with it. Like... I am thinking specifically of a scene that involves, you know, this new doctor consulting with his lawyer at in who's like on the toilet, like sitting on the toilet. And yeah. it's just like, but they're both absolutely ridiculous in that scene. Yes. And, and it, he's consulting the lawyer because, uh, you know, a nurse to my mind actually did hit on him, but then he hit on her back and then she, you know, you know, was immediately like you'll hear from my lawyer yeah. and so he's like all of a sudden being sued for a you know obscene amount of money but and he's also <laughs> an idiot like that's exactly you know that, and he's also a lewd idiot and she also did trap him I mean it's just exactly you know everyone is up to their own games the lawyer included Alexander Skarsgård Alexander Skarsgård <laughs> so he's 
And in that conversation, makes fun of nationalism, masculinity, hyper-masculinity, you know, this failure of men to take account for their actions, but also their fragility and their, like, susceptibility to temptation. I mean, it's it's wonderfully done. Maybe it's not so much about Lars von Trier being, like, the provocateur, but more like a trickster who's playing with expectations and... Um, in that, but in doing so, sort of like dismantles all our preconceptions. And I think that's really a capacity he has. Yeah. Um, however, I must say that there was like one scene I was a little bit uh, uncomfortable with when it's about um, diversity and the fact that oh. uh, it's, a, it's like a very, very white uh, workplace environment. And then the Danes, so the Swedish doctor who just arrived says that it's like far too white. Um, and then the Danes uh, start to cast um, doctors of color by basically casting the cleaning personnel, um, which, is, um, which is very, very ironic. But then the two guys who were casted just sit around and... They look very, very helpless. And um, I wish they'd had a role. I, exactly, was, I was hoping exactly, that they would exactly. get some kind of role there where they would add to the absurdity. But, you know, I felt like Lars von Trier ended up doing what the Danes do inside the show. You know, it, yeah, it it's just kind of... Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think uh, we still Can't have a few all. episodes. <laughs> yeah, we still have a few episodes to see. So we'll see. But... You know, he, yeah, he, de Lars von Trier definitely cannot win them all. So, but, but I think we recommend it on the whole. Totally. Um, Christina, you said, you said trickster. And I think Chloe saw a movie today that is a perfect segue and which she should tell us all about. All right. Well, I've been on a bench, on the bench for a couple of these. So now I'll go for one yes. that I think I'm the only person who saw this morning. Um, this morning at 8.30, I went to a midnight movie called The People's Joker, which was directed by Vera Drew, who is a longtime editor for Tim and Eric, worked on Beef House, directed the latest season of On Cinema. And The People's Joker is a crowdsourced retelling of the Joker story starring her. And it's sort of a trans coming of age story made with contributions of like, uh, during the pandemic, tons of kind of uh, independent animators, um, lots of people, collaborators from the Tim and Eric scene. Tim Heidecker voices a kind of Alex Jones character. It's set in this Gotham City that's kind of like a nightmarish version of like kind of the, the, the Trumpian kind of dystopia we've been living in. Uh, and like if Saturday Night Live were like a place. So it's also kind of a satire of mainstream liberal comedy, too, which is interesting and trying to find, like, how can you sort of define yourself outside of the mainstream and kind of like, I don't know, um, what, what possibilities exist for that? And uh, yeah, it's, it's really funny, but it also takes kind of the framework of a comic book origin story myth, talking about heroes and villains. How do the crowdsourced bits... How There's, are they incorporated into so, the story? So it's just kind of like, uh, I mean, most of it is done through green screen, but there are a lot of different kind of animated sequences. Um, I mean, there's a core cast of kind of uh, real actors, but um, a lot of the vignettes are done kind of with independently sourced contributions. So 
that'll be either kind of like there will be um, hand-drawn animation sequences. There will be kind of uh, it, like there's a whole kind of Batmobile sequence that's kind of CGI. Um, Lauren Michaels is a character in the film, uh, CGI animated by, it looked to me like Dan Cups, who has done some pretty horrific animations for On Cinema, but voiced by Sarah Sherman, aka Sarah Squirm, who is a cast member on Saturday Night Live. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and he's kind of the villain of the piece in a way, one of the many villains of the piece. Um, But yeah, so the effect is kind of this like hodgepodge aggregate kind of like, anarchic aesthetic experience which is sort of part of what drew is trying to do vera drew is trying to do with this um yeah just kind of try and create an aesthetic that's outside of like it's funny too because i remember talking with a friend when the joker film came out because it feels like i mean that that movie is very bad it's very bad but but it's also just like it felt kind of like a mist opportunity in a way because it reminded me how kind of drab and humorless these like dark gritty comic book movies are and it's like if they wanted to do something that's truly like provocative instead of saying like oh this is like a serious like scorsese and like remix or whatever they they should have hired someone like uh or like gotten a crew like tim and eric to do something really strange Mm. with it in mid 90 but i mean obviously that would never happen for obvious reasons but um yeah, and uh, I mean, uh, I think listeners of this podcast will appreciate that Viridrio also manages to turn this into a much funnier kind of Scorsese pastiche. Um, there's a joke involving one of my favorite bit characters in Goodfellas, Johnny Two Times. And I'll leave that secret lie <laughs> for people who haven't seen it yet. Okay. But yeah. I don't know. Whoa. Do you have other questions about this? Because it's hard to describe. Uh, I have many questions. I don't think this <laughs> Do podcast time? can accommodate them. Well, I would highly recommend people seek out the People's Joker. Oh, okay. Well, we are almost out of time, but I wanted each of us to have an opportunity to shout out some things we've seen. I know, Christina, you wanted to mention uh, a film you liked. I think Horse Opera. Is that maybe you want to say a few words about it? Yeah, Horse Opera. Um, it was part of the Wavelength program. It's rather experimental. It's a film by Maura Davey. And um, it's basically shot in a very rural environment with a big focus on animals, mostly on horses, mostly on the behinds of horses, which is something one could argue about. Um, um, However, um, for me, it was very interesting because you can see it's a very close observation of what horses do. And And it's a feature? it's well it's an experimental form so um you have like uh, all these shots all these takes from uh, this rural background the farm the horses other animals toads foxes um, deer a beer um and then you have an a woman maybe in her 50s i'm not completely sure She's filming herself while she is reading a text, which in turn she is listening to through ear um, ear earplugs um, through a headset. Yeah. Um, so um, and she's reading it in a very not she's not reading it she's repeating it in a very clumsy way or sort of clumsy way. Um, and the text has nothing to do with what what you see um, on screen. So. The text is mostly about um, a woman going out in New York, going to parties and describing these parties and 
describing these parties in a very eloquent way. So you have this reclusion of the rural life, a solitary woman um, in a rural um, environment, in a farm, interacting with horses and uh, with the staff horses too. And then you have sort of like the report, the text um, relating to um, a time where you went to parties, where you celebrated indoors, where um, you met tons of people, where you took drugs and where you had tons of fun. Or maybe not, that depends. But uh, most of the times, yeah, there is a certain level of fun involved. Um, it's a lot about dancing and dance movements. And uh, I very much like the contrast. And of course, given the fact that we went through a pandemic um, and that we all had to live a more recluded and less social life. I think um, that is something which is in the film without being mentioned explicitly. And that was something I, I liked a lot. Chloe, I know that in the Wavelengths program, uh, I think we all saw the, saw the Wavelengths shorts program number two, Crisis of Contact. I know that there's a short that you loved, which I will admit puzzled me completely but I defer to you because you're the you're the music expert well that's that's a lofty <laughs> title <laughs> but um yeah I, I will say I, I second the praise for horse opera that was one of my favorites so far too um but yeah I mean from the wavelengths program I really loved the short um I thought the world of you which is directed by Kurt Walker and it's sort of this like hauntology perhaps of an outsider musician named Lewis who uh who recorded two kind of um really beautiful haunting sort of synth driven like romantic albums in the 80s on bandy pressing kind of self-released records and uh this was a musician that um his music was reissued in the mid 2010s and their label was like trying to hunt him down to figure out kind of if he was real or not. And there's a lot of debate online, which is woven into the film, sort of an inner titles, like forum comments where people are saying like, oh, if Lewis were real, it, someone would have found him by now. Like it's impossible for someone to disappear without a trace quite like this. And so Walker takes kind of this mystique and he makes this sort of like, dreamy lush romantic sort of vignette based like idea of like imaginings of scenes from lewis's life like um but he'll always kind of keep him at an arm's length like frame the actor who plays him from behind and have him in this uh white convertible which is one of like the one pieces that he's standing in front of a car like this in the cover of his second record and so it's kind of like he's uh, Walker is taking these pieces of like the mythology or non-mythology and making this very sparing but sort of like beautiful uh, kind of dream of what his life might have been like. And mm. I, I don't know, I was really, there's this one shot in it and I don't know why it stuck with me, but it's like the camera is like across the street from him as he comes out of this kind of office park, but maybe it was a studio building or something. But anyway, he's in this suit that, uh, he's wearing on the cover of one of his records and, and it's just like he's like this pinprick of a person and you hear this music kind of coming in and out of the soundtrack of the film in these like really tantalizing fragments and then you just see this guy and he's this tiny guy and then he goes back into the into the building and you hear like nighttime ambiance and it's just I, I thought that was just that's one of my favorite shots of the festival so far just like oh, this, wow. this feeling of like you know wanting to grasp the thing at the heart of this mystery but like 
also wanting to keep it secret because like the music itself is so evocative of something that you don't want to reduce too much. Mm. And I think like that gets at something so special about record collecting. And I, I don't know, it's, it's something that hit me very personally. Mm. So I was really floored by it. Thank you, Kurt Walker. <laughs> mm. Well, I, I feel like that really reframes the short for me. So thank you for that. Uh, Beatrice, did you have anything to shout out sure. or to um, shout down? I don't know. <laughs> no, no. We'll keep things positive. Yeah. Um, I just saw this morning or this afternoon uh, Viking, Viking <laughs> by the Quebecois director, Stéphane Lefleur, um, which is, um, you know, I guess his other film of note is Tudor Nicole, which came out a few years ago, which was also quite good um but viking is um about a man who uh succeeds in being selected for this i guess like government program where people are recreating a space mission that is currently happening um the people are matched their personalities are you know very as precisely as possible matched to the actual astronauts that are in space um, and they're like thrown into this like weird place out in like the California desert and they're given like daily note cards to like understand what their moods are that day and they kind of have to like recreate the dynamics so that you know this government entity can better control uh, or predict the outcome of what is happening on the space mission. Um, so uh, I mean the concept itself is like kind of very strange and it's, it's sort of a droll comedy, um, very much in the style. Like it reminded me of a lot of like Aki Kurosmaki, um, in terms of the humor, but also just in terms of, uh, the, the formal restraint to it. There's just like a lot of still shots, um, but, you know, I, I thought it was, I just thought it was like kind of a breath of fresh air in terms of a lot of my severe viewing. It is also a wavelengths entry. Mm. Um, I don't know. I just thought it was, was, was fun. Had, you know, a sense of comedy, a sense of romance, also some like weird transportive moments where you like kind of look into Mars, uh, which was kind of interesting. Um, and yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I think... That we've ended on such a positive note. We've all shouted out some some little feature, uh, some films we liked, and it ended up being a wavelength ending. Uh, so unless anyone has any final thoughts, we will call it a wrap. Thank you, all three of you, for joining. This was lovely, and I hope to have you all back on the podcast sometime. Thank you so much, Devika. The feeling is mutual. Yes, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for having us. Um, it was great. And what an honor to be among so many intelligent women. I know. <laughs> <That's> very <laughs> cool. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Listeners, there are women at TIFF too. Um, and keep listening for more from the Film Comment Podcast at Toronto. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcommon.com.